You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Director Alan Arkish. I wanted to know about the septuagenarian substitute ball. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay, so I went to NYU Film School, and um, I transferred there from a college called Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So uh, I had wanted, I was interested in film school and interested in movies when I was in high school. But I graduated from high school in 1966, and my guidance counselor at my high school, Fort Lee High School, had never even heard of film school and uh, had obviously never had a student interested in that. So he steered me away from that, and I ended up at a school studying psychology, and then I wanted to transfer. And so I applied to Boston uh, university and then to NYU and I went to NYU and I entered in the fall of 67 took courses and stuff. And the, a guy by the name of Haig Mnugin was the man who was in charge of the film school. And there was only about 75 or 80 students in the film school at the time. And it didn't even take up a whole floor. It was called actually referred to as the eighth floor. I mean, there was no Tisch film school. Um, it was just a couple of classrooms on the eighth floor on Green Street and Third in uh, the village, right off of Washington Square Park. So, you know, Haig was in charge. We did these student films. And then in my, um, in my junior year, they added another teacher to the, the school. And um, they needed a class in film history, and they needed someone to help teach film production class. And Haig had someone who we actually produced a movie for who was a great student at NYU and whose student films we had seen, that was Scorsese. So Scorsese joined the faculty then, and he was a, a pretty much an out-of-work filmmaker, and Woodstock hadn't happened yet. So he was my film history teacher, and uh, he taught a summer film workshop, the summer of 1969. And that's when he went up to Woodstock and worked at the festival, and I was working I was at the film school and took his courses and also was working at the film more East. Um, and was looking to, he became my faculty advisor in, uh, my senior year. So that's 69 and 70. Uh, and I was at the right of a proposal for a student film and I was working at the film more. So I thought I had so much access to it and seen so much music and rock and roll and so forth that I thought it might be interesting to do something about what I was seeing about how rock stars came out of nowhere and all of a sudden were full-blown phenomenons. Working on the stage crew, the film Maurice, was a guy by the name of John Ford Noonan, who was a playwright. And John had written a play called The Year Boston Won the Pennant, which had run at Lincoln Center. Now, the whole backstage crew of, of the film Maurice was composed of people who had some relationship to film or theater in, in the beginnings of, of, of that. That is, John Ford Noonan was interested in theater. Most of the people on the stage crew had gone to Carnegie Tech Theater School or, the, or NYU Theater School. Everyone was in their 20s. You know, so you had this great wealth of talent, nascent talent. It hadn't happened yet, you know. I mean, it was there. And so I... Um, wrote out, was writing this play, this screenplay about, um, about rock and roll and the film war and so forth. It was something that I knew, and Scorsese encouraged us to, and when I handed in various ideas for student films, he said, write about something that you know about, write about people that you know about, you know, because I was getting off into these odd 
arcane areas. And then so I started writing this, and John, I was telling John Lennon about it and asking him plays because he's a playwright. So he really helped me, and he read drafts of it, and he um, guided me. And then I thought, well, why don't you play the lead character, which is this sort of bum off the street who becomes a, uh, a rock and roll star, and his father wants all his money. And then at the end of his arc of fame, he gets shot. So John helped me write it, and I got the equipment out in about February of 1970, and over the course of a week or so, I got to shoot it, and I talked to Bill Graham, who ran the Fillmore East, and he helped let me use the theater when it wasn't in use. He let me use it, and I talked to the light show and the lighting people, and they contributed their time and talents. And Joshua White, who ran the Joshua Light Show at the time, had a 16-millimeter eclair, and when I had trouble getting a film from NYU, because they only had about five cameras in those days, uh, I used Josh's eclair. And that's what I did. I made this student film that um, had a rock and roll band called The Rig, which was, and The Rig was a band that my roommate at the time was interested in managing. And he was at NYU. So it's all very insular. So I made this movie and, uh, I've got it in the National Student Film Festival, and I think it won second or third prize in National Student Film Festival. Jonathan Kaplan, another director, another NYU person, and a longtime friend of mine, won first prize of his film, which was called Stanley Stanley. It was also one of the few times that the West Coast schools like SC and UCLA had won first or second prize. When I first entered NYU, we went to the National Student Film Festival, the in the spring of that year. So it's actually the spring of 68. So I've been at NYU from fall 67, 68. Anyway, uh, and we watched all the student films and a movie called THX 1138 by George Lucas had won first prize at the National Student Film Festival. So we were like really impressed with the West Coast. Film. So anyway, that's Septuagenarian, John Ford Noonan's in it, and it's the rise and fall of a rock star. And it's about 25 minutes long. So was that kind of your calling card for Hollywood, or how did you kind of well, decide to go out there? Calling card is not the right word, because here's why. When I was in film school, it wasn't like you went to film school to become a director. I mean, you did, but it would be like going to college to become a poet. It was a long shot, you know? I'd only heard of one person who had gone to film school and become a director, made a Hollywood movie, when I first started in film school, and that was Francis Coppola. As the years went by film school, I realized Scorsese got to make, had made Who's That Knocking at My Door, and Coppola had made another movie, but it was not, Easy Rider didn't happen till I was like a senior. I didn't really know that people had gone out to work on Roger Corman movies. So it was all... The Hollywood system, if you know film history, was the Hollywood system. So it was not like you were going to go to film school and get a job at Hollywood. That had not happened yet. So it just went to film school. And I had the film, and I showed it to people who I could get an appointment with in the film business, or my father, or his friends. I probably knew this guy I went to Temple with, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, that was the end of it, you know. That's where it, it ended. You showed it to people, and that was that. I went off and joined the light show from the Fillmore East, a, a company called Joe's Lights, which was an offshoot of the Joshua Light Show. And we did lighting light shows for the Grateful Dead and different people. We went to Europe and we lived in London for about a year. 
doing lighting for industrial events and different different times people would use psychedelic lighting. We we did it and performed with bands like The Who and different theaters. And then when that was done, I was broke. I was out of work. I came back to the United States and I got a job driving a cab. That was where I was at. And at that point, some point in what I imagine was 74, uh, Jonathan Kaplan got a phone call from Roger Corman out of the clear blue sky, asking him if he'd be interested in coming out to California and taking over or writing a nurse's movie. Now, the, do you, are you aware of the Corman formula nurses movies and stewardess movies and all that stuff? I have seen quite a few. Okay. So that was like all that early 70s stuff, the three girl pictures that were sort of the, the foundation or meat and potatoes of what was New World Pictures. That was the first stuff that Roger made. The young nurses, uh, in case of Jonathan, it was nightfall nurses, and then student teachers. And his thing came up because the original director hadn't worked out or whatever had happened, and Roger was making producing Box Club Bertha which Marty Scorsese was directing. And I think what happened was he had asked Marty, who was a really good film student, uh, who would take over his nursing movie, and Marty had given him Jonathan's name at job and got this phone call. And indeed was Roger Corman. And the next day he was on an airplane uh, out to L.A. He rewrote Night Call Nurses, and he directed Night Call Nurses. Then he thought his career was over, <laughs> and Night Call Nurses made money six weeks later, and uh, he got another call to student teachers. And so... I was a friends with Jonathan, and we were talking about this. And he started various friends of our, of his, and myself included, all were had worked at the Fillmore and had worked at and gone to NYU one by one. Got out to California with all the money in our pocket that we'd saved up doing other jobs. We either ended up as PAs or slowly, you know, did other jobs, and we shared a house and apartment. And gradually, John Davison became uh, worked for Corman and worked in the trail department. And then Joe Dante, who was a friend of John's, who I had met maybe once, but I didn't know Joe. And then they were working for Roger, and then they needed someone else. And, so, and I had a car. So I started working for Roger Corman, I would say, in spring 74, summer of 74, right around then, for about $50 a week. I think it was spring, and I was a working in the post-production department. It was just me and Joe. And we were doing whatever had to be done, whether it be the color correct on the American version of Cries and Whispers, the Bergman picture, you know, or making sure that uh, Sergio Santiago prints when they arrived could be run on a projector and cutting a trailer for... The first thing I worked on was a TV spot for Cage Heat, Jonathan Denny picture. At the same time, uh, right around then the trailer, which Joe was cutting for Candy Stripe Nurses. Within about three months, Roger had bought uh, Polini's Amarcord. So we were doing trailers and TV spots. I guess the next was Big Bad Mama, Death Race 2000, that whole Corman output of the 70s. So that's kind of how the transition happened from film school to Corman. In between, I drove a cab for eight months, you know, and I took odd jobs when I came out here, meaning here being Los Angeles. How did you go from cutting trailers and doing this kind of PA and, and anything that needed to be done work into doing Hollywood Boulevard with Joe Dante? Well, all we did was work. We had absolutely no life. Even at 50 bucks a week and the amount of work that there was, that's all we did. 
you know, was was go to the editing room. And at that point, the editing room was in the back of an optical house uh, that was owned by a guy by the name of Jack Raven. Jack Raven was a had started out actually working for Max Fleischer. I mean, this is really obscure movie stuff. Okay. And then he had come out and he had started getting involved somehow or other with special effects. And that's, I guess, how Roger ran into him in the fifth. And Jack had worked on uh, Rocket Ship XM, Atomic Submarine, and then some Corman movies like Not of This Earth and um, The Viking Women and the Sea Serpent and all that kind of stuff. And then he had opened up an optical house, and that's how he earned his living, doing optical, you know, with an optical printer that he owned. And he made a deal with Roger because he knew him, and that's, he used, he leased out the editing space, the extra space in the place, and that was all the editing rooms for New World. Joe and I had one room in that place, and we cut the trailers. And so we were dealing with Roger all the time. At a certain point, we would see Roger once or twice a week, once a week at least. And he would come to the office and come down to our editing room and look at the trailer. We would run the trailer that we had cut, black and white, dupe of it, dupe of the picture. We'd cut, we'd cut the trailer from a dupe. And then we would we would say the catch lines. We didn't do rough mixes or any of that. So you'd, you'd run the footage and you'd read, you know, Ron Howard pops the clutch, tells the world, he might not. It's a scream and squeal and mash it on. You know, all that kind of stuff. Ron Howard pops the clutch and tells the world to eat my dust. Roger got to know us, you know, and we got to know what he wanted firsthand in the same room with a, with a guy who ran the studio, had an idea of how he wanted to sell these movies, had theaters that were booking the movies, and he was a one-man studio, you know, and it, it was his, his final say on everything. And so you would... Um, here, you know, you'd show him a cut for a trailer and he'd ask for this or that. You began to understand what in these movies he considered valuable in terms of advertising and exploitation and what scenes in a, in a movie, because you went to all the cuts because you, as soon as the cut was ready to show Roger of any of these movies, we would either see that cut or the next day we would borrow the cut and run it on the movieola and mark off sections to be used in the trailer. Sometimes we would watch a movie with Roger and he'd tell you what he wanted to sell in it. So even when we saw Fellini's Amarcord, which was a masterpiece and a complete shock that we had to, that he bought it and we were cutting the trailer for it. He said, look, look boys, I know it's Fellini, but you know, we still have to sell sex and violence. And so we found, you know, in the outline that we talked about the scenes in it that he liked and he wanted to see in the trailer. So over the course of all this time, we got to know all the films that had been distributed by Roger and had been either made by him or he had picked up the rights to them. And we had seen them all and we'd seen them on our movieola because we'd cut them. And now we've been working there. This is we're into our second year there. So I started in 74 and then worked through that summer. And then now in the spring and summer of 75, as we got to the late summer of 75, while all this was going on, we would be driving back and forth to various film labs. Our editing room was in Hollywood. And the film labs were out in Culver City. That was MGM film lab, because at that point, there was Metro Color. The Lux Color was in Hollywood, and CFI was another lab. 
that we used. And we spent a lot of time going back and forth because we had to watch all the answer prints and color corrections on all these trailers. And there was a new campaign every two weeks. So there would be a trailer and two TV spots. That's a lot of time, and it would take you one or two times to get it right. So that's a lot of trips out to the lab. So Joe and I would, would talk about ideas for a corner, for a movie because, you know, he was going to make whatever he was making. You know, he, if we knew he wanted to make another high school movie, you know, or, or we would come up with an idea for it. And that was, you know, or he wanted to do a car chase picture. We would talk about different car chase ideas. And mostly, though, he generated the material himself, but we wanted to be ready. And we did a bunch of outlines. And at one point, we realized that the pattern was that around August, he would say something like that he was going to lay you off. Or give you a vacation is how he put it. So he would give you like an unpaid vacation for two or three weeks. They rehire you and you go back to work with whatever pictures you were distributing. And, you know, we caught on to that after the first time. We didn't want to lose that. And at the end of the summer, he wasn't making anything, nor was he distributing much in August until he got to September and October. I think you probably read this somewhere and, you know, it's been on the DVD. John, we wanted to make a movie in a big way. So John Davison talked, had lunch with Roger and said, you know, you've got all this equipment sitting around. You're not going to make anything till November. And it's just sitting there. Why don't you let us use it to make a movie? We'll make the most action-packed movie that you've ever, you know, had. And he goes, how are you going to do that? We... John said, we're going to use all the action scenes from all the movies that you've distributed so far, which is the women in prison movies, the Sirio Santiago women in prison movies, uh, the Filipino ones. At that point, Big Bad Mama, Death Race 2000, Crazy Mama, the shot that Demi did. You know, you had a lot of pictures with all this action in them. He, John said, we can make this movie for like the cheapest. Roger, of course, threw a figure at us, you know, which was $75,000. And it was a done deal. So now we had to write a story around this. And we came up with the murders on the movie set story. So that was kind of, that was it. And that happened in, a, I guess, during the summer. So June or July of 75 is when we really started to come up with this idea. We shot it in September of 75. There was always, there was an only way that we could shoot it and get it done for that kind of money was Joe was going to do the dialogue scenes and I was going to do the action scenes. And I would shoot MOS. Uh, Joe would use uh, Rogers Mitchell for the dialogue scenes and I would use the uh, Ari B and the Araflex, which didn't have sound, and I would shoot the other stuff with the Araflex. And we, w we used all the leftover film from all the other Corbin movies because they saved it. You know, when you finish a movie, they would store that stuff. Most of it was short end. For those of you who don't know what a short end of, way back before the, in an earlier century, movies were shot on film and they came in rolls. They came in rolls of a thousand feet, or if you can do a handheld scene of 400 feet, because a roll of film weighs a lot. A thousand foot roll would be a really big magazine. That's a lot of weight to carry on the shoulder. So they come into 400 foot magazines. So you would do a bunch of takes. Now, at a certain point, you get down to like a hundred feet left on a on a um, reel. That's less than a minute of film. So if the scene is longer than that, you don't want to start running in and run out of film. You that's what's called a short end. And usually, you use those short ends for 
you know, inserts or whatever, or sometimes you just sold them, or sometimes you just you couldn't do anything with them. We Hollywood Boulevard was made entirely on short end, all leftover film from all different movies. Now that means that each roll of each batch of film made in those days had a different batch number, because they and you try to if you're making a real movie like a like a, a studio movie, you'd have a cameraman who would order all the film for that movie from one batch. So it would all be consistent because it's a chemical process. In our case, we got whatever was left over from every different batch from Metro and Kodak, whoever we were getting these short ends. And there are people who used to sell short ends. So Hollywood Boulevard was made from all these short ends. Anyway, I forgot how we got on the topic of short ends, but that's <laughs> that was kind of how we started on Hollywood Boulevard. We, we, we had the footage uh, Danny Opatashi wrote a script that we kept messing with, and there was things that we wanted to put in there, like Joe wanted to do the 50s commercials, and we had a section of the movie about the 50s, and um, because also we had footage of 50s cars, and we had to do murders on the movie set so that we could use the Death Race 2000 footage, because we found out that the Death Race cars still existed, we could use them in the movie. And uh, then we used all the war stuff, the, the explosions and all the people firing machine guns from the uh, Filipino uh, women in prison movies. And so a lot of the shots of everyone firing machine guns and stuff that I did out in Malibu at Tapia Park, while Joe was maybe 100 feet away doing the dialogue out in Malibu at Tapia Park. But that was kind of the process of it. Would you mind if I ask you just a couple quick questions about heroes? Sure. How did you get involved with that? Were you there on the ground level when it came to Heroes? Before Heroes, I did a show called Crossing Jordan. Crossing Jordan was created by Tim Kring. I did the pilot to Jordan, and then I stayed, and I was the producer on that show. And about, I guess it was the fourth year of, of uh, Crossing Jordan, Tim got the idea for Heroes. So he went and they made the pilot for Heroes using some of the Crossing Jordan people, and I stayed and supervised Jordan to the end of the season, and so then when they put Heroes into production, Tim asked me to come over and work on that as well. So I was doing Heroes and Crossing Jordan for the first season of Heroes, and what turned into the last season of Jordan. That's how my involvement happened with Heroes. So you were just there for that first season? No, I was there for three seasons. I was the executive producer, director on Heroes. So in the first season, I directed four episodes, including Company Man, which is my, one of my favorite things I've done. And if you know Heroes, that's the one where you find the origins of um, of how HRG gets uh, the cheerleader in her family and all that stuff. Uh, it's the one where the house blows up. And I also directed Four Months Ago, which is the introduction to Siler episode. I love that one. And uh, I did Company and I was there for the second season. I was the executive producer then, and the third. And the fourth season of the show, I just directed one episode. And I'm going to go off soon to work with Tim again on a new show called Gig. Yeah, some of the cinematography, I mean, just some of the way that Heroes was shot. I mean, I know that we had had comic book movies before, but we had never had a comic book show like this before. We really wanted to make sure that the, there was a directorial presence in the show. And most shows did not stress that. Most shows are very, and I'm not saying, look, the shows were great. And, but they had a very strict directorial style. And you weren't supposed to venture beyond that. And even though the styles would be 
like West Wing, you know, thrilling to watch. There was a certain thing. And in Heroes, we wanted that, but we wanted some more diversity of style because we had so many characters in so many different places. And that's one of the things that we came up with with the idea of really having the low wide angle shot as a, a basis for our show. So all the sets were designed where things were up higher on the set. So the windows and everything were about three feet higher off the floor than you normally would have. So your compositions are balanced, even though you're shooting from a low angle. And there was a lot more trim and a lot more work, the ceilings on the sets and lamps and stuff, so that even though you were pointed up, you weren't looking at anything blank. There was a lot of visual information in the frame. So it was all designed to be at a low angle. We used to be very bold. We'd always say, if it feels like it's not tight enough, then definitely make it twice as tight. If it feels like it's not loose enough, make it twice as wide, which also made for the fact that it took longer to shoot. There's a way that you shoot television shows with over-the-shoulder shots and close-ups that fold into each other and feed into coverage really quickly, easily. It's more efficient. When you do those low wide angle shots, basically that shot exists on its own. It doesn't become another shot. If I was drawing this out, I could show you, but it is what it is, you know. It doesn't become an over the shoulder shot, you know. You're kind of playing the scene in that angle. So in order to light and do a shot like that, you're adding maybe 25 minutes onto any scene. 25 to 30 minutes, because you're shooting it from a different direction, so the lights have to be moved. You do that with four scenes a day, you've added two, two hours onto the day, or you have to do two hours less of other things, as well as the fact that we had a lot of special effects on the show, and everyone's power was either a, a visual effect done CGI or a visual effect that was done in the camera, a lens or a style of shooting it or a way that we did it, so that you could just shoot it right away. And like when um, you would hear people's voices, Greg. Yeah, what it was, we, we used a certain lens called a swing and tilt and a very narrow focus to it, or a tremendous amount of focus. And so we'd have his ear in focus and we'd have the background in focus. So it was so unnatural. Look, you got the sense that he was hearing what they were saying in the background. And we actually had people freeze and stand perfectly still and time would stop and you'd make up certain props and things to look like they had been falling over when time would stop. So we had developed all these physical ways of doing stuff. It was a really um, creative period for me because each show was such a challenge. That first season blew my socks off. It was just terrific. Well, and Tim was a great writer, Tim Crank, And he thought his whole feeling and the tension between his concept which was real people with superpowers and what that means to their lives, that creative tension and that creative point of view worked really well against the impulse to go comic book. And the show succeeded, I think. The show succeeded when that tension existed. But when the show went more comic book than that, that tension is when we started getting into the larger conspiracies and we lost that thing that appealed across the board about the show. We became more of a show for a narrower, narrower fan base. The first season, that show appealed to everybody. We didn't quite know what we were doing. <laughs> well, we didn't know what we were doing, but it was, we we're doing such a wide expanse of ideas that it hadn't 
once we started narrowing our focus, because we got hung up on the conspiracy aspects and certain aspects of the characters, the show changed and it lost some of its mojo. Well, listen, we love doing it. And a TV show in motion, changing the direction of a TV show in motion is like turning an oil tanker. It takes a lot of miles to do it, you know, and you're on the boat, so you're not seeing it, <laughs> you know, you're experiencing it. And it was so exciting, and so many great things happened in that first season. And again, and there are great things in the second and the third season. It's just that we had gone from being such a big phenomenon. Well, I think that it helped really introduce a lot of great actors to people that wouldn't have Fantastic. otherwise known about them. Yeah, yeah, Zach Kinto, you know, so many great people in the show, and Claire, what's her name? You know, she's on Nashville now. Wonderful casting. I mean, we had we had great casting people, um, and they were the casting people on Crossing Jordan as well. So they just are. I've worked with them many times. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much. This has been you're wonderful. welcome. Actress P.J. Souls. Is it true? Was your first role in Bloodbath, a Joel Reed movie? You know, I I know I screamed in that movie. I look, I get out of bed and I look out the window and I scream. And it was in New York, so it, it, it probably was one of my first little on screen because I I remember going out to Block Island and doing a film for a, a fashion photographer that I had worked with Rick Van Glinten Camp, and and that was uh, I can't remember the name of that, but it did win kind of several awards. And uh, but that was probably my very first, only because I was a model and a, a commercial TV commercial actress, and was on a soap opera in, in New York City. And I do remember Bloodbath was filmed in New York, so it's kind of foggy as to like the set and everything. It just for some reason I just don't have a great memory of it, other than I have seen it and I do remember the scene, and I remember that's the first time I screamed. <laughs> so where'd that come from? I didn't know I could do that. Are you considered amongst the uh, the pantheon of scream queens, as it were? I am, but I mean, obviously, bloodbath. It's it's only gained in uh, I, I hate to use the word notoriety, but among horror fans, you know, they seek out any little tidbit they can, and because of social media and because of the way the world works today with the internet, obviously, it's uh, and, the, and YouTube. You know, you can find out these little details of one's past. But besides that, and Carrie, and Halloween, and, well, I was in a TV movie called The Possessed that I thought was pretty good, but I don't know how much screaming we did in that. But, you know, I I mean, it just seems like I've done so many other kinds and types of movies, but, you know, I'm I'm proud to be in the the category of scream queen. It's okay. It's just that I don't only do horror films, I guess, is my point. Well, yeah, you were in one of my favorite dramas, Breaking Away. Oh, yeah, well, that I was hardly in that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I was staying with my husband, Dennis Quaid, because it was three months in Bloomington, Indiana, and I tried desperately to get the part of the French girl, because I even had the... I. I they had started filming, and I was like, well, this is silly. You know, I mean, Dennis and I were just married, and I really wanted to be with him, and we kind of made a pact in those early days to kind of go to each other's sets unless we had, you know, it ended up where we had to be apart for three months at a time. That's probably what led to our our divorce. But in any event, 
But that particular one, we got a 1954 Chevy, a little basset hound puppy, and I had a crock pot, and I used to make food, and I actually watched uh, these two people. Um, well, that was a different movie, our winning season. But in any in any event, um, I tried to get the part of the French girl, so I auditioned kind of loosely for Peter Yates on a street corner when they were filming something else, and I put on a, a dark wig, and I and I said that I was one of the students working at the university, uh, studying at the university there in Bloomington, and I heard they needed a French girl. And this is all in my very cute French accent, and I did this whole little thing because I hadn't quite cast it yet. Then all of a sudden, the cinematographer looks at me and then looks at Peter and goes, look at those eyes. They look like PJ's eyes. And I was like, darn! <laughs> you have to have such good observant powers. I guess that's why you're a cinematographer. And Peter went, is that PJ? And I went, it's PJ. But I, but I went to the International School of Brussels. I speak French. Please let me be the French girl. He goes, you did a wonderful job, a marvelous job. But we just cast her this morning. I'm sorry. But anyway, yeah, I got to be one of Rod's girls. And I think it was only because I look cute in a bathing suit. Because, you know, I was in my 20s then. So that was an awesome shoot. And we really had a lot of fun. That rock quarry, we used to swim in it. It was so much fun. There were great restaurants. The cast was wonderful. Dennis Christopher, Hart Bogner. We had we had such a good time. You were a part of that uh, very famous audition. It's funny that an audition can be famous. That whole uh, Star Wars yes. slash Curie thing. My, yes, I had moved from New York, Manhattan. Like I said, I lived there in the early 70s, and I quickly decided that uh, – Broadway it was not going to work for me. I didn't smoke or drink. I got tired around 9 p.m. Not a good thing. <laughs> I was up early, so I did modeling, soap opera, Love is a Many Splendor thing the last year that it was on. Um, and I liked it, but everyone was saying, well, if you're not really, you know, a smoker or a drinker and hanging out in the theater, then you need to move to L.A., which I did. And I only had my modeling agency at the time. <clears throat> and uh, they recommended Nita Blanchard, who was the model, modeling agency on Highland in L.A., and uh, she heard about this casting call for every young person in town, you know, and so I went and we sat in the hallway for about two hours, and I walked in, and George Lucas on the left, Brian Palm on the right, behind two desks, they just looked me up and down, and Brian looked at George and said, I'll put her on my list, and George went, okay. And then I turned to go, and I was wearing my red baseball hat because I was a model, and I was heard that there was a lot of sun and sunshine in, in California. <laughs> wanted to protect my skin, and I had overalls on. I, I decided to go for the tomboy kind of look. I didn't want to compete with pretty the pretty angle. And uh, anyway, I turned to go, and Brian said, the next audition, <clears throat> bring your hat. So in the subsequent auditions, he had me bring my hat, and that was, it was very important to him. So I was wondering if I, did he cast me for my hat, or because <laughs> he liked me? I don't know. The hat was a very important role for for Norma and Carrie, though, and I'm I'm grateful for it. <laughs> Did I read that you were injured on set? Not on Rock and Roll High School. On Carrie, that my death scene, the fire hose got out of control, and it was a full force fire hose, and it it was supposed to just be hitting my head and my neck and batting my face around, but, you know, it was a really, they shouldn't have turned the power on that strong, but it did hit my ear, and it broke my eardrum, so. Ooh. Yeah, but that was my last scene, so it worked out okay. <laughs> the wincing was real, though. So I was not acting. It seems like Carrie might have led to Halloween. Halloween, definitely, you said that the, um, Alan had seen you and kind of led to Rock and Roll High School. Right. Did Rock and Roll High School help lead to any roles that you know of? 
probably not Pride of Benjamin or Stripes, but um, I don't know, you know, because because of that movie and just the fact that I was doing films, you know, I was able to get a lot of television appearances, Simon and Simon, Airwolf, things like that, that, you know, kind of gave you notice, I guess, but um, I can't say for sure that Goldie Hawn would have ever seen <laughs> Rock and Roll High School. What it did, it gave me, you know, a, a, a great feeling of confidence, you know, having done a movie that I was proud of so that when I went to an audition, I felt like I could, I can do this role, you know, so, um, and Private Benjamin probably led to Stripes, maybe, I don't know, um, I don't, I, I'm not sure it was my audition, I think, I had just done a movie called Soggy Bottom USA, which is one of my favorite movies that nobody's ever seen, but I had just filmed that in Texas after... Uh, Private Benjamin, and I went right from there to an audition in Fort Knox. It was, it was Marshall, Texas, to, to Fort Knox, Kentucky, where they had already started shooting it and cast Sean Young. And I did a, a one scene with Harold Ramis, and he and I just got to get got along so terrifically on the video. It was Ivan Reitman? I guess Bill was probably not going to do an audition with somebody, <laughs> even though I was going to play his girlfriend. But anyway, when by the time I landed, you know, my agent had already called and said, "Pack your bags. You're going back. You know, you got the part." So, I think it was that audition and the fact that they had looked at. They told me 300 girls for the part, and it, you know, it's hard to cast someone opposite Bill Murray. <laughs> and then I made it my mission after I heard how hard he was to work with to make sure that I was, you know, always one step ahead of him. So I think the kitchen scene was good for that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen Soggy Bottom USA, but just looking at the cast that's in this film, it's is just amazing. amazing. The cast is ridiculous. So um, it's just one of those movies that they fired the director the first two, within the first two days. So the guy that had spent six months preparing for this movie got fired and then they brought in Ted Flicker, who was a television director, and he was fine. It's just that the guy that had his heart and soul invested in it, for some reason, I don't even know why it happened, but, you know, he was fired, and we all loved him. And, you know, Don Johnson said they were, we were going to make the next Grapes of Wrath. And they built this whole town that actually Walter Hill came in and used for Southern Comfort after we left, because, you know, we were there while they were still building this little 1920s town. And it was just a beautiful little heartwarming movie and uh, I just I love it and I loved all the people in it and we were there three months and it was a wonderful wonderful shoot you've been in such a wide variety of things what are some of your favorite films that you kind of you know wish more people had seen other than Soggy Bottom (laughs) well that would be definitely number one because I know only if I'm in the south I don't know if Atlanta is really considered the south not that far south but I guess it is, but people will bring me a poster or a DVD of Soggy Bottom once in a while. It's always surprising to me, that one. And, I mean, I think maybe even Private Benjamin. I thought that was a terrific movie, and uh, I don't really get asked, you know, to sign too many DVDs from that. But but that is because most of the conventions I go to are horror-based, you know, but they love Rock and Roll High School, and that's the ironic thing is it's it's totally equal rock and roll high school with Halloween in terms of the fan base out there. You know, I've had signed so many pictures and, and uh, even people that are going to make uh, my signature into a tattoo. They've got a tattoo of Joey Ramone on their leg and we're talking 17, 18 year old girls here and they want my signature next to Joey Ramone on their leg. I'm like, really? <laughs> or people with babies in strollers and her name is Riff. 
after your character in Rock and Roll High School or a 15-year-old girl, of you know, now saying, Rock and Roll High School saved my life. I'm like, really? You watched that movie? <laughs> so it's such a surprise always to me, but happily so. Yeah, you've even had like an album named after you and songs and stuff. What does that yeah, feel well, like? Whatever happened to PJ Souls or there's a, 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 a Japanese duo, the Riff Randalls. There's a, a German skating group, a uh, roller skating group, the Riff Randalls. So it's really cool. <laughs> that character resonated. It's cool. Very proud of that. <laughs> uh, going back to Private Benjamin real quick, what was Eileen Brennan like to work with? Hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I had a couple, most of my most poignant scenes were with her because I was a goody two-shoes, Wanda Winter, and I was her favorite because I did everything perfectly. So I was the example. But uh, she just seemed to be in character all the time to me because she was very funny. And I don't know, she just she was just a, f- a funny, funny lady. <laughs> Goldie was funny on film, but very serious. But she was also producing the movie, and she had just had... Kate Hudson, and I have a lot of Polaroids with her and Kate as a baby, and it's so cute because Kate, her little face is exactly the same as a two-month-old as as she looks now, and uh, so when I look back on it and having that after that, had kids and whatever and realized, wow, that was pretty cool to make a movie. She already had Oliver, and then she had Kate as a baby, two months old, then she's producing the movie and starring in the movie. And we all thought, gosh, she's a little standoffish. She doesn't talk to us. She doesn't want to have, you know, have fun with us. Where's that cute little Goldie Hawn from laughing? But when you look back on it, you go, oh my God, it's amazing she could even be so great in the movie because she was adorable in it. Yeah, it really felt like, looking back at her career, felt like she was so driven and just kind of knew what she was doing in order to get to that next level, you know? Well, yeah, and ironically, on Laughing, she played as Ditz, and she was anything but that. So, you know, I mean, that's what it takes to play somebody like that, you know? And she was really uh, a very good businesswoman, and she, she was extremely driven. What are you working on currently? Um, well, I go to these conventions. I've been trying to, like, you know, put down little pieces here and there for a biography because everybody seems to be an autobiography, I should say. Everybody seems to be writing down their memoirs because everybody's so damn interested in what, <laughs> what this little tidbit or that tidbit, of which is not hard to remember, but it's not like there's amazing stories, you know. <laughs> I mean, there are some, but... For the most part, it's it's a job and you're working, you know, and everybody thinks it's as glamorous working on a film as watching the movie, but it's not, you know. It's, like, it's just really not, but in any event. So I've been doing that, and then I get offered parts here and there, but nowadays with ultra, ultra low budget and things like that, it's it's, you know, it's not something I really want to do is to work on something for $100, unless it's amazing or some friend of a friend or something. But I would love to be on that Screen Queens uh, television show that's just been announced, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Emma Roberts. That sounds really cool. So if I can maybe get a spot on that, or I mean, just a, you know, a guest star. It's hard these days on, on the regular television channels, you know, to get on those shows to get a part because the line is so long ahead of me for people that are willing to, to be on those shows. So, <laughs> And thank God for Rob Zombie with The Devil's Reject. So, you know, I'm going in February to Days of the Dead in Atlanta and uh, to Devil's Rejects reunion 
I love those guys. I mean, I only worked with Sid Haig, but now I know the whole cast because of <laughs> all the conventions that we do. And you sit on a panel and you listen to their stories. And, you know, Rob Zombie's a friend. And so because of, you know, his love of, of which was the casting call, notable 70s actors, I was able to be, you know, have a little cameo in that movie, which has really uh, been wonderful. People love love that movie, you know, the, the horror fans again, and they they love my cameo in it, and uh, so that was that's uh, you know one of the things. Hopefully, another Rob Zombie movie because he's fun to work with. I was very surprised you didn't show up in the Halloween movies. I know, especially since for his 40th birthday, I gave him my original Halloween script as his birthday present. I was like, what am I going to bring him? I didn't, you know, I mean, I hadn't gone to a Hollywood party in a long time, and I was just about to leave, and I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know. And then I looked through my scripts, and I thought, well, he told me he loved Halloween, because I only, you know, I filmed that cameo for Devil's Rejects. It was just one day, but at lunch, he had his arm full of posters and DVDs and plunks them down at the table at lunch while I'm eating my salad. He's like, can you sign these? And I go, well, okay. <laughs> so he's a collector like Johnny Ramone was. He was a, he's an avid collector of memorabilia. So I knew that it would mean something special to him. The cover was missing. I had all my other scripts from my kids. I figured, ah, they don't need this tattered Halloween script. You know, uh, it would mean so much more to, to him. But in any event, I, I wrapped it up and realized I probably should have put it in a big box or something because it was pouring rain. There were puddles everywhere, and I go into this club, and there's this huge pile of presents, and I put it on the top. And when I left that night, I'm like, oh, my God, it probably dropped in a mud puddle, and somebody ran over with their car. It's like he's never going to get it. But anyway, 7 a.m., the phone rang. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm not answering that. And I was back in the days of the actual regular answering machines, and it was Rob and he was like, oh, my God, it's the best present I've ever gotten. I'm wrapping it in plastic. No hands are ever going to touch it but me. It's going into my vault. Thank you so much. This means so much to me. So that was cool. But then it's announced he's doing this reimagining. I'm like, oh, cool. My agent, I'm telling him any day now you're going to get the call. I'm going to be in it, of course. So how can he not? I gave him my script. Not a word. Didn't hear. And then the second one. Then he, then he gets hot. You know, Dee Wallace is the mother. I'm like, really? I mean, I love her. She's a friend of mine. But I'm like, come on. Or the nurse. I could have, there were a few roles up there I could have played. But then Lords, you know, Witches of Salem or Lords of Salem, whatever. No, no call. But I don't know. You know, he likes to give everyone a, a chance. So he like, there's, there's so many people that he likes. So but hopefully I, I, I'll be at another one. You are in one that I have been tracking down for a long time. I've never managed to see Murder on the Yellow Brick Road. Well, you know, because I live in Woodland Hills, and next door to me lived Ross Hagen, and he's a actor. He's passed away now. He's an actor, director, and writer, and just a really fun guy. And so that was just a. I mean, I can't say her favor because I really liked the part. So it was an aging actress, you know, that has her little fit, and so it was because there were three great scenes in it, and it's it's a. You know, the name of his movie company with his wife was B-Movies and Little Bumblebee insignia, but... And that, they are very B-Movies, but they're, you know, they have their charm to them, and, uh, I, you know, it's, it would be definitely worth watching, I think. Just, you get a kick out of it. I don't know where you could find it, though. I have a copy, but... <laughs> Maybe maybe it's on Amazon.com. I don't know. 
<laughs> and and the first one I did from I did too. I did Born, which was a body organ replacement network, which I think has been renamed Merchants of Death, and they redid the soundtrack. But that was his first one, and that I that I play a you know the head of this company that, in fact, Clint Howard is in it. He uh, uh, and uh, Bill Smith and Bill, they go out and they kidnap uh, young girls, and you know we do terrible things to them and, and get their organs and sell them to the highest bidder for these rich and wealthy people that are looking for organs for their children or parents or whatever. So <laughs> so that one was really more fun because that's a bit more of a delicious, nasty character. So, But very, very B, I would say a C, maybe not even a B movie, but a C movie. <laughs> But kind of fun because, but see, that's what I'm saying. Like a friend of a friend, so this is my next door neighbor, and you know, for 20 years, so of course, and he's just the godfather of both my kids. So you got to say yes when he says, "You want to do this part?" Because <laughs> he'd always say, "There's no small parts. There's only small actors." So you got to rise to the occasion. <laughs> Hundred dollars a day and lunch <laughs> and a copy of the DVD. <laughs> Little did I know that I'd be the only one with a copy of the DVD. <laughs> well, hey, I don't want to keep you anymore. I appreciate the time that you've given me. Screenwriters Richard Whitley and Russ Vonch. I was going to ask you guys how you kind of got your start. So when did you meet and how did the, you, know, you guys uh, decide to start working together? Well, as Russ said, we went to film school together in Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and we were production majors and making student films and hanging out and talking about let's make a feature and all this kind of stuff. It, it was great because, as I was saying, it was just total movies. I tried to see 365 movies in one year. Just that's all we did. We lived and breathed and talked about movies. We'd go to movies and talk, you know, go to Denny's because that's all we could afford and just talk about the new Truffaut or Fellini or Robert Altman. And then, Russ, you graduated, what, a semester before? Yeah, 76. Russ came out, you you came out to USC, and I'm back there still making my little student film and, you know, a 60-millimeter sync, non-sync sound movie and couldn't afford a sync sound film, so I wrote a script to get my degree. And then as Jeff Couchman, our fellow buddy and I, were about to graduate, Russ, you brought us all together for that. That's right. We wrote our first screenplay together in New York. We went to Jeff uh, uh, during the summer of 77 and wrote our first screenplay together. But it was your idea. You brought us together with the idea and everything. That's right. So that was really the first the chance that all of us had to write together and to really finish complete screenplay together. And uh, from that, then when when uh, I by that time I had, I had uh, made my home in Hollywood, uh, Wit came out a little bit later, and we just started going around trying to get stuff made. That was, I think one of the reasons why we became writers is because everything else to be any other kind of job in the film industry kind of requires money. You have to be a producer, to be a uh, to get your own film going, it takes a lot of money. But the one thing you can do in the movie business doesn't require any money at all is to be a screenwriter because all you need is a paper and a uh, some pen. You know, that's one of the reasons why we we follow that path as opposed to well, let's try and be directors, let's try and be producers. I guess I always thought of myself as a writer first. I tried stand-up. I did stand-up comedy, and I was always writing. So I kind of always thought of that, even though I made films in college, Super 8 and 16 millimeter. I always thought of myself as a writer first. And but when I 
moved out here. Russ had already been there here for a while, and Russ let me crash in his uh, on his couch for a couple weeks. And I I can't remember if it was then or after I got my place. We said, hey, Roger Corman hired Martin Scorsese and Peter Bogdanovich and Francis Ford Coppola, gave them all their starts. He could do it to us, right? We went to Roger Corman's office. Both of us had our student films, 16-millimeter films in a can. And we walked into the office, and we were looking for jobs. So we were filming Rock and Roll High School. It was either immediately after or right at the end because it started filming the Monday after Thanksgiving of, 2000, of 1978 and then it was a four-week shoot. So that's 20 days. So it was either yeah. during or immediately after. And Russ and I heard that they were making a television show based on the movie Animal House, which we both loved. And so we snuck onto the Universal Studios lot, tracked down the office, and submitted our script and said, you know, we'd like to submit this as a writing sample for Delta House. Did, we must have signed a release or something because we didn't have agents at the time. And they contacted us, and um, the story editors who were in charge of hiring people were Michael Tolkien, who went on to uh, write The Player, and his brother Stephen Tolkien, who's a very successful writer and director of uh, television movies and features himself. When we met them, they said, you've had a movie produced and now you want to write television? Because there was that disparity then. You were either in movies or TV. We said, come on, it's, it's Animal House. And they showed us a, took us to a screening room, and they showed us the pilot. And then Russ and I went and pitched ideas. I remember we went to the library and did an enormous amount of research because it took place in 1962. And we pitched an idea, which was, uh, you know, about uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> and, um, and, and we got the gig. But it's because these guys loved rock and roll high school, both Stephen and Michael. Exactly. So we were very lucky. The one thing that comes up continuously is just – it was a quick shoot, you know, 20, 21 days, and it was in and out, and it was just so intense. And, you know, everybody remembers, like, that Alan couldn't shoot the scene in the in the gymnasium and stuff. But, yeah, just uh, it, it seems like everybody has those memories of just how intense this shoot was. And then the, the kind of the letdown as far as this not being this huge hit afterwards, but then everybody seems very grateful that it has kind of gone on to have this cult status and has grown over the years to be the film that it is now. I saw, I'd seen it in the midnight screening here in town, but Russ, didn't you see it in New York or somewhere else where people were dressed like the hall monitors? Yes, I went to a screening, and, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show always had the people dressing as the characters. In the screening I went to, they were, people were dressed up as characters from it, and <laughs> these two hall monitors walked down the aisle giving out the merits to people in the audience. I saw it in uh, L.A., I saw it in Frisco, I saw it in New York City. I saw it in a town in, in Florida. This movie really played all over America and all the revival houses at midnight. I mean, it really was, for three or four or five years, the place to go for the film to see a midnight showing. My parents, who had retired to Florida, went and saw the movie. Of course, they saw it at a matinee discount price. Thanks for not paying full price. And so my mom, uh, I think, probably hung out at the entrance to the theater, probably telling every person, my, my son was one of the writers. My son was one of the writers. My, my son wrote a movie. And another senior citizen walks out and said, no, no, my son did. 
and it was Joe Dante's mom. By coincidence, pretty funny. So when did that um, that cold splash of water of reality hit you guys as far as your next gig when you're not being asked to be on the set and you're not being asked for your opinions on this stuff? Well, I remember on the very next thing we did, which was the episode of Delta House, we were there every once in a while, but they didn't film the gags right. The director didn't frame the gags right. They did things differently. Remember that, Russ? Oh, it was such a letdown to see them handle how they handled humor on that show, and it was uh, it was just complete opposite of of our experience in Rockwell High School. And I remember we were sitting. The, the heavy hand of the network was on this show because it was you know Rock and Roll. The Animal House was a, an R-rated movie, you know. So so they at the time it was R-rated. So, uh, so they're still trying to make this thing on t- the same experience on TV, but it has to be in family hour, you know. So, so they're cutting out our script left and right. But Maddie Simmons is uh, is uh, uh, going through the script, lying through lines. We can't say that. We can't say this. We can't say that. They just eviscerated the script, and then when they finally shot what we did, what was left, the, the direction was just terrible, you know. Uh, so uh, we were. It was a very disappointing thing to see after the big high of Rockwell High School to see what they absolutely what they next. But, but in all fairness, Michael and Stephen Tolkien loved our script. It was fun yeah. working with, them, and they said, "When this show gets picked up, we want you guys on staff for next season." And uh, we said, "Great!" And they said, "In fact, we want you to write another episode this year." And we said, "Great." Instead, they hired some guy named John Hughes. I don't ever know what happened to him. <laughs> Cause, yeah, cause there was, was there was a big there was a big nexus at the time between between uh, the, the the publication and uh, and their, the branching out of the movie. So we we met uh, one day with uh, uh, PJ O'Rourke at the that's uh, right. Lounge, right. That's right. Maddie Simmons said, so uh, what else can I do for you guys? And Russ and I looked at each other and almost simultaneously said, we want to write for the magazine. And so we met, as Russ said, P.J. O'Rourke at the Polo Lounge, for God's sakes. And he could not have been nicer. And I guess the beginning entry-level job is to write, remember the, the fake letters up front, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Russ and I wrote many of those fake letters. Um, dear sirs, if I'm so smart, how come I'm dead? Albert Einstein, third urn from the left. We did some writing for, uh, for National Lampoon, yeah. Absolutely, but we not only did some of those letters, they, we wrote bits and stuff that we got paid for that some of them didn't run in the magazine. But uh, it was it was great. I mean, hey, you know, yeah. our rent wasn't high, and we were writing jokes for a living. Come on, it was great. We and, did uh, cable TV. Cable TV at that time was just starting to do their own movies. So we got from Rockville High School, we got uh, uh, a job writing a cable TV movie. Make, making fun of current fads. Um, unfortunately, it didn't get uh, produced, but it was all because of, absolutely, because of Rock and Roll High School. And, um, uh, no, it's... Uh it's it's great. I mean, you know, uh, you know, when they have screenings and they invite Russ and I to do Q and A's, it's it's kind of a thrill. And you know, I guess we're, we're those guys who made the B movies in the 1940s again. You know, coming out. You know, it was. Did you? It was. It, go ahead. It, it was a dis- it was a disappointment that Rockwell High School didn't uh, wasn't a big success when it came out. But really, we were too busy writing other stuff to pay much attention. We were getting work, so we were happy. I think Alan, maybe Alan said this. I think he approached Roger and said, Roger, I'm betting, 
that this movie made has made approximately thirty million dollars. And I think Roger said something like very close to that. Maybe Alan has said because yeah, that's not a yeah. take or two hundred eighty thousand dollar investment. Yeah, they. Uh, I, I believe that it is. It is officially the highest grossing uh, Roger Corman film. Oh, oh wow. I, I did not know that. I did not yeah. know that. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, and as we've said more than once, we owe our career to Alan Arkish. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Alan and Joe. And Joe Dante. And Joe. Yeah. Absolutely, Alan and Joe. But serendipity that they were there that day, so we could gush over Hollywood Boulevard. But um, I learned uh, I learned a lot from Joe and Alan in the editing room because a lot of their, as I mentioned before, a lot of their job was cutting trailers, and you learned a lot about how to make a movie from cutting trailers because you you know what's what's important, what's not, what what to what to leave in and uh, and get audiences excited. And so that was that was something I, I tried to keep in mind when I was writing screenplays. Well, if I had to make a trailer of this movie, what would I put in it? And that would spur ideas about about the direction of the movie and how to make it interesting to the audience. So that was and their love of movies, their their knowledge of old movies was uh, was very helpful to me. So it was like going to graduate school, being in the editing rooms there and making the movie was was being like graduate school for a film. Absolutely, and it was like kindred spirits for us talking in about old movies and being able to reference them with Joe and Alan. Yeah, They, they were. They were just amazing because they were living their dream you as well. Remember, you, you have to remember at this time there was there, there was very little opportunity to see old stuff uh, that you on a regular basis that you wanted specifically you wanted to see because there's there's no video and there was no uh, uh, DVDs or anything like that. So you had to wait until something came out on TV at twelve o'clock at night or played in some revival theater somewhere. So. Uh, we used, I remember spending most of my evenings going out to revival theaters and trying to catch up on the last seven years of filmmaking that they were that they were showing at these places. You know, uh, that was really happening. Yeah, I mean, I literally went out three or four times uh, a night, uh, a week, uh, looking at stuff I had never seen before that was playing the revival theaters. And of course, the video killed all that by '62 or '63 or about around there. Absolutely, absolutely. And then there was a the first cable channel in L.A., the Z Channel. Oh my God! And they showed old movies, and it was just amazing, you know. And uh, but it was uh, yeah. But meeting kindred spirits right out of film school, like Alan and Joe, we were completely spoiled, absolutely spoiled beyond belief. <laughs> but um, oh well, what do you do? Uh, but um, it was. Uh, we're, we feel very fortunate to, to have been part of this movie because, I mean, it's that it, it, it's just so that um, it's still so uh, championed and people still love it. You know, it's it's kind of great. You know, we're very honored, flattered beyond belief. Not bad for something that was written in a in a cruddy studio apartment kitchen. That's right. How, how long did it take? We did, we did about six weeks or so, didn't we? Wow, I don't remember it being that fast, but uh, sure, I'll go with six weeks. Um, um, yeah, I think we had, I remember I we go ahead. No, I remember it was that summer of '78, so it would have been June, July, and August. So it was probably not much. It was you know because we had a very detailed outline, very detailed outline, and so and we and, and didn't some of those jokes from that those test pages didn't some of those remain, Russ? I don't remember. Not very. 
a few maybe, and not very many, because they uh, the, the sequence in the, that we wrote didn't really end up in the movie. So that's right. Because you know, we're we still where, we still where we can though. <laughs> right, because we were referencing scenes that we later would cut. Yeah. Right, we were rewriting scenes that would later would cut. Absolutely. Yeah. But um, uh, um, but no, it's like we're, we're we're thrilled to death, you know, that people still love the movie, and um, you know, it's it's kind of like you know, um, I, I guess the Munchkins could run into Judy Garland and say, "Hey, remember that time? That was fun." You know, I guess that's what this is like. Cinematographer Dean Cundy. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the witch who came from the sea. Yes. Uh huh. Now you're not necessarily credited for DP on that, but you're credited for technical supervisor. How did you kind of fall into that one? Matt Simber had made a couple of movies, and uh, I, I can't. Who got the credit for that? Was that uh, Kenny Gibb? You know, Matt had done a. Uh, a um, couple of films, and, and uh, the the guy who was his you know, DP a lot of times was a uh, fellow Kenny Gibb, and I think Matt wanted to be loyal to him, but you know he they, they uh, uh, asked me to come on and you know be kind of a supervisor on it. I I did um, quite a lot of consulting with Kenny on it. Was there much uh, technical supervision that you did on that one? Mostly, I fulfilled the the cinematographer. Um, sort of approach to it, um, you know, a lot of the the lighting and also uh, helping Matt, um, you know, from the standpoint of camera and everything. As I remember, um, you know, a lot of my input was with in between Matt and uh, and Kenny. What was Matt Simber like to work with? Uh, he he was a very interesting fellow, still is, I guess. He came from uh, very much of the of the low budget exploitation of film end of filmmaking, you know, as did a lot of us, and, um, and certainly Roger and all these people who um, who were making exploitation films, uh, you know, as you might call them, but of a more interesting nature and higher, you know, might say higher quality, um, although the the budgets, you know, were kind of limiting, but. But there was always an interesting sort of viewpoint. And uh, Matt was open to uh, uh, stuff. I had uh, started uh, using anamorphic lenses for a big widescreen 235 aspect ratio look. The film seemed to me to sort of need a visual something to it. And uh, so I went in and I talked to Matt and said, why don't we use these new Tadeo anamorphic lenses? I can get us a deal about it. And he said, well, I don't know. Do we really need it? And I talked him into it. I think it really enhanced the the style of it. I think as he started to see the dailies and stuff, he, he felt that, you know, it had um, elevated the film visually, you know, into a, a sort of a bigger look. So I think he was pleased after the fact to, to have, gone through the extra spence and extra you know time it takes to work in that um, in that format yeah no the film is gorgeous I mean it really holds up after all these years I screened it again with uh, doing the commentary uh, with Matt it actually they came to my house and and uh, ran it and we recorded it and I hadn't seen it for a long time and you know I, I was I was uh, actually surprised at uh, 
you know, what we had accomplished with it. The last time I spoke to you was, I think it was right before you got that big award. How did that, uh, your ceremony and everything go? Oh, that uh, went very well. Uh, thank you. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great privilege, a great uh, honor, um, all of that to get uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, you know, have to look at it as uh, sort of the highlight of, you know, my recognition for um, what I've done. Although, as I said at the time when I did the speech, I said I I really hate to think of it as the Lifetime Achievement Award because I don't think my life is over yet. So I, I'm going to think of it as the Semi-Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, because you've got a couple films in pre- and post-production now, don't you? Yeah, there's a couple of films. Uh, one that's just been uh, released in Australia and is... Uh, maybe coming up here, uh, Freedom. You know, a couple of films that are uh, in pre-production now. So uh, I, I, you know, very much enjoy working in, in film making and and what I do. That uh, you know, to think of retiring to me is like no, I I couldn't do that. I I if if when I go, I hope that I. Uh, you know, just go quietly and peacefully by falling off of a dolly during the middle of a shot. That's quietly and peacefully? Yeah, well, you know, as long as it doesn't really disrupt the uh, production. Between takes, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Oh, sure. I'm glad to have been able to, to help out. Actress Day Young. So this is kind of a trial by fire. You go from not working in films to working 12-hour days on this intense schedule. I've been doing a lot of, you know, stage and, 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 and training, you know, all of that. So I'd come out for that reason. And I just, you know, was sideswept into this project before I even had gotten an agent. I was literally back in about one week and it all happened. You must be kind of a, a double threat when it comes to conventions because you were also in a bunch of Star Trek episodes, too. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, I have to tell you, yes, I, I was, and I thank God that I have those because I literally, I mean, PJ's been in so many horror movies that for me, because most of these conventions that we go to are horror-based, and occasionally they want the rock and, you know, the rock and roller, too. But I, I really don't do very well at these conventions. It's a little sad, actually. PJ has these long, long lines, and Mary Warnoff and I are just, like, looking at each other going, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. But um, I do have the occasional Star Trek people who come. I never go to Star Trek conventions, but I have had a, a number of people come up and have their cards for me to sign because I've done about three different episodes from various series with the Star Trek. So that was, you know, that's a great, there's really a strong fan base for that too. Do people recognize you more at the conventions if you put on the big glasses? Yes, I think, you know, I, I, I do wear glasses, the big reading glasses kind of, but no, I think, you know, I think that, gosh, we're, we're so much older. <laughs> I don't think anybody really recognizes us. I mean, if we're walking down the hallway, they don't, they don't. But if we're at our table with all our pictures and stuff, they definitely recognize us. Tell me about when you reprised the role in Shake, Rattle, and Rock. 
Alan just called us up and he asked if um, we would just come in and kind of play older. We really didn't do our own characters at all. We just did, we didn't reprise our, our roles. We just did characters and it was like a more of a, uh, you know, rock and roll kind of theme, but it was one day's work and it, uh, it was great. it was just great to see TJ and 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 to work with Alan again, and also I worked with him on a Crossing Jordan. I really enjoyed every time I worked with him. He's a wonderful director and uh, very specific in what he wants, and that's always great. I wanted to ask you about your artwork. How did you get into that? You know, I because I think I told you I went to Kingswood uh, Kingswood School Cranbrook, and it's a um, art school in many many ways. I had a background in art. And then in college, I was fulfilling, I had to fulfill a a requirement and I took a sculpture class and I just loved it and took to it amazingly. Then I just thought, oh, this would be a great thing to do as a hobby. You know, when I'm not acting now, it's, it's a profession as well. I'm in a number of galleries, one in Carmel, one in San Diego, I've been in uh, different galleries in Los Angeles and in Santa Fe. So it's been a great experience. And I love working in stone primarily, which involves compressor and all these power tools like saws and masks and all sorts of things, a lot of dust. And then I also work in clay to go to bronze. So I do a number of commissions. Uh, Actually, I'm doing a commission Right now, for someone in Michigan, in northern Michigan, uh, he has the largest collection of Amelia Earhart memorabilia, and he's asked me to do two different sculptures of Amelia to go into a traveling museum. So that was kind of a cool experience that he reached out to me, and I've been doing these uh, these commissions for him. I, you know, I, I, I thank God all the time that I have that as well, you know, uh, um, that I have my sculpture. And then I'm a part of the Actors Studio, very, very active with that out here in Los Angeles. That, and Martin Lando and Mark Rydell are the um, moderators and run it out here. And then on the East Coast, it's Al Pacino and Ellen Burstyn. And I'm about to start a production of a play that I've worked with a writer to create the last three years. And uh, we're going to put it up at the Actors Studio in February. And then we're hoping to jump it to a bigger venue. So I've been working a lot on that. Yeah, so it's been it's been great. I've been keeping busy and keeping creative, which is very important for me. And uh, doing both my artwork as well as, as acting. After this, you kind of started working and you never stopped. You've just been like looking at your CV. It's like every year you've got at least one or two projects coming out. Yeah, I was, uh, I, yeah, I, I'm now more, um, in theater stuff. I think, um, I did a CSI last year, but it's, this year's been a little, you know, now what they're doing is they're doing these ultra low budget movies. And so I've done a few of those this year and, but, you know, it's the theater is really just what keeps me going and doing theater. And, but, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career. I keep working. And PJ, I don't think, has been working as much. But she works like five or six uh, conventions a year. That's what she's been doing. 
because she has a real big fan base with the Halloween, uh, Halloween, and you know, um, Carrie, all of those movies that she stripes. You know, those have a lot of fans, and that's I think what she does mainly now. I try to keep working as best I can, but you know, you never know. So I'm, as I said, I'm really grateful. I can throw my my energy between the theater and my sculpture. Actor Clint Howard. When did you first start acting? How old were you when you first made an appearance? Wow. I was two. It was on. It was an episode of the Andy Griffith Show, and it was just coincidental luck that there was no designs of me being in the business. The only thing, the only advantage, and it was the same thing with, with Ron. It was a complete coincidence that Ron got his first professional acting job. Um, my parents had no designs on us being actors. The thing about it is, mom and dad, dad's still alive, Rance Howard, my mom, Jean, passed away several years ago, a wonderful lady, and anyway, they had a wonderful journey together. And uh, when we were little, they were all about the theater. They were all about the theater. They were all about acting. They had come from Oklahoma. They had gotten a foothold in the business. And, you know, Ron and I learned about the business by osmosis. And we learned acting by osmosis and the guidance of dad, you know. Um, so, you know, I don't remember when I was first taught how to act. I mean, if you even want to put it in those terms. It's, I'm a little bit like that kid that's raised in the, in the circus that ends up walking the high wire and everybody goes, oh my God, look, he's walking the high wire. Well, if he grew up walking, if his first steps were on the high wire, you know, if he's a little kid playing on the high wire, he's going to get pretty good at it, which is sort of like what happened to me. So you're growing up in the business. Why, why didn't you have one of these horribly public breakdowns? Well, you know what? There's a lot of juvenile actors that don't have horrible, ugly breakdowns. Hey, listen, I, you know, I've got some scars on my butt. You know, listen, there's a, there's a price to pay or there's some obstacles to face when you're a juvenile actor making the transition into adulthood. Uh, wonderful guidance from my dad and also having Ron as an example of what you do and what you don't do and how you handle yourself. And I, I was warned when I was about 12 and, and I was certainly aware. I mean, I, I was aware of acting by the time I was six or seven, I knew exactly what I was doing and what I needed to do. And I could see when other actors weren't doing it. And, you know, cause was, for dad, the way he taught us, it was, it was just all about the job. There's a right way and a wrong way of doing this job. And mostly the right way is being prepared. If you're prepared, you're way ahead of, you know, where you should be. And, and that's, I, every once in a while as a kid, I would see an adult who wasn't prepared and I'd go, geez, that's not good. But wonderful guidance from, from dad. And, you know, he started explaining to me that, you know, the damn problem with the business is when you hit about 15 years old, the studios can start hiring 18 year olds and they don't have to mess with the child labor laws. And, you know, when, um, you you know, you can only allow a kid to be on a set a certain amount of hours. And if it's the school year, he's got to have three hours of school. And, you know, when a kid hits about 15 or 16, the casting directors start looking around for 18 year olds who look young. So there's this period of time where you're no longer, even, you know, when you're 12, you know, they can't hire an 18 year old to play 12. 
And I was fully prepared for it. And also, too, mom and dad were were really sort of steadfast about this particular thing. And that was that we live as normal a life as possible. You know, Ron and I went to the same public schools. There was a continuity in our life. We, we, played, we played in the Burbank Park and Recreation's athletic leagues. I played Little League Baseball. I played on the high school baseball team. You know, by the time I was about 14 years old, I didn't mind that it slowed up some. I didn't mind, you know, my, when I was 16 in high school, I mean, I wasn't turning work down, but I wasn't, like, depressed because I wasn't working because I was in high school. I was having fun. Uh, so anyway, and, and, and you, when you lose momentum... You know, when you don't work for a few years and then you hit 18 and you almost have to then reintroduce yourself to the business, it can be tricky. And also you change. I mean, I was a, you know, cute little adolescent kid with, you know, with a lot of blonde hair. And, and by the time I was 18 or 19, my hair, I needed a toupee. You know, yeah, when I was on Evil Speak, I needed a toupee. So, so anyway, it, it, I, you know, I, listen, I, I, some of it is luck. I feel like that there is a higher power or some sort of entity that is guiding things. And also, too, you know, that, that part of that is that dad has been right there making really solid, solid decisions and teaching both Ron and I very basic things, you know. And, and he did when we were little, and he still does. You know, I'm learning as much from my dad now. He's 86 years old as, you know, as ever. Do you still keep in touch with any of the rock and roll high school people? You know what? Not really. I see PJ from time to time. I see Alan Arkish in the neighborhood, actually. I see every once in a while. I've, I, a couple times I've seen Alan driving, you know, his car. And, I, you know, I've been walking or whatever, and we've pulled, he's pulled over and we've talked. And, and uh, you know, socially, though, no. No. Uh, I'm on Day Young's. I'm, I'm a friend of Day Young's on Facebook. You know, and I'll say, and PJ is pretty active when going to these events and things, you know, so, so she goes now Vince, you know, Vince has shied away from being, you know, an alumni, an alum of rock and roll high school. And I completely respect it. He's gone ahead and had a completely a different kind of life. You know, he's the host of the world poker tour, the television program, and uh, I think he plays poker, and uh, you know I think he wants to put Rock and Roll High School behind him. I mean, he did that right from the beginning, and I respect it. I embrace it. I, I mean, I respect his decision, but everything I've done, from Rock and Roll High School to Ice Cream Man to Ticks, you know, all of these movies that a lot of people would sort of turn their nose up at, I fully embrace. You know, I mean, I, because it's like I'm not in charge. There's somebody else doing the casting. It ain't me. And I don't mean the casting directors aren't even doing the casting. I just go with the flow. And, you know, I didn't decide to be in Star Trek. And as it turned out, that was an iconic show. And it solidified me as probably the world's youngest character actor. You know, and God gave me a very interesting face. And, and you know, and my hair kind of fell out and I became a character actor. And, and it, it seemed to work. And so I haven't, I just go with the flow. And if it means being in the ice cream man, I'm in the ice cream man. That the ice cream man in itself has this kind of really nice, loyal underground following. 
you know, m- much like Rock and Roll High School. M- rock and Roll High School is more high profile because the Ramones are, you know, Hall of Famers. And and the music and, and you know, being a comedy. And, and, and you know, listen, it's a, I'm proud of being in Rock and Roll High School. But also, too, I'll stick my chest out when I start talking about Ice Cream Man or The Race. I was curious about the film before Rock and Roll High School, uh, Cotton Candy. What were the circumstances around that one? Well, Cotton Candy was an idea that Ron and I concocted. And we're very close and were back then and still are. I mean, our lives have, have, have you know, spread us apart a little bit. But, but back in those days, um, Ron had, had gotten a deal with NBC to make a couple of uh, TV movies. This was back in the heyday of Happy Days. And Ron had a little negotiating position, and ABC wasn't too interested in having Ron Howard be a director, which is sort of, I'd like to know the name of that executive who made that decision. But NBC was. So NBC set Ron up to make a couple of TV movies. And one of the ideas that we immediately came up with was this underdog band kind of dealing with their senior year in high school, one guy in particular, uh, who, who sort of, you know, kind of a nerd, but he plays music and he'd love to be a success and just kind of tell that story. And this woman at NBC, Deanne Barkley, she was very helpful in guiding us and we went and wrote it. Um, they said yes and we went ahead and did it and made a little lightweight comedy. Um, I mean, not so much a comedy, kind of a serial comedy. You know, I've always been a big fan of music, and, and I just personally, as much as I like Joe Renzetti, the fellow who did the music for Cotton Candy, I, you know, I felt like that if the, if the music of Cotton Candy would have been a little edgier, if the whole thing would have been a little edgier, the thing would have worked a little better. As it turned out, you know, it was very much like the title of the movie, Cotton Candy, you know, kind of lightweight. You were in a couple bands, or at least one band that I know of, right? I was in one band. Um, mm-hmm. After filming Evil Speak and being on my own for the first time, I moved into a house with my best friend who was learning how to play the guitar. He was a pretty good guitar player, natural artistic ability. And he sort of badgered me into having a band. And it was back in the day where punk music was evolving, this, this is back in the very early 80s, maybe late 70s. And I can't sing, but I could sort of storytell and rant, emit emotion as a front man. And we created this sound, two guitars, a bass player, a drummer, and me, where I would sort of rant a song and with a kind of a fun, a fun riff, and, and we'd drive it home, and you know we were huge embracers of the three-minute song, the two-minute and 50-second song. We had our favorite bands and, and, and other musicians, artists that influenced us. And for a couple of years, I was in the Kempsters. Did you guys ever record anything? Oh, we recorded a lot of stuff. I mean, oddly enough, actually, we went and did some demos. We never had a contract. We played locally some. Uh, we had this one dive that we played regularly. We ended up almost using it as a practice facility. We, we would go and play, you know, uh, midweek at a convenient time. And, but basically, you know, we wouldn't invite anybody. We'd just go up there, and it was a good chance for us to run through our set. Um, and we did some good shows. We opened for the Dickies a few times. Um, 
it, it, it we, we, and we recorded stuff and our, one of our guitar players is Sabino, Sabino Flores, my lead guitar player, who a brilliant guy. And he's, he's not, he's no longer a professional musician. Um, he's living a wonderful life and, and I, I stay in touch with all the guys, but we sort of let him go. We wrote these simple little songs and then let Sabino sort of riff through them. And we created this pretty interesting sound and uh, it was a blast. You know, I realized after a while how hard it was going to be to get to the next level. When in fact, as an actor, I had already sort of accomplished that. And it was, it was a little bit of fear and a little bit of me recognizing that my talents were limited. That I sort of said, hey guys, this has been fun, but you know, two years of being a, a punk guy is enough. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.